Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. God's Word says, Then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that had budded, and the tables, tablets of covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. That's the word of the living God. Those of you who've been with us, you know, and those of you who are just with us today for the first time, we've been journeying through a study on the tabernacle. The title of our series has been called Not Without Blood. And we've piece by piece by piece looked at the truth of the tabernacle and the fact that every element of it, every detail of it points to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and God's work through Him to atone for our sin, to uh, resurrect Him from the dead, to place Him now at the Father's right hand where the Bible says He ever lives to make intercession for us. I want to remind you about something here. that This is not just a study where we dust off the Old Testament and look into some things that or symbolic of Jesus, and just go, wow, isn't that something that that was there? But this is, this is a study, this is a study that we're going on of the earthly tabernacle, and we're studying the earthly tabernacle in order to learn heavenly truth. Now, we went through that last week. We're studying the earthly tabernacle in order to learn and glean heavenly truth. Now, last week, we went through a bit piece by piece. There are seven pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. And last week, we saw the tabernacle in the Gospel of John. And we also moved over to Revelation, and we saw the tabernacle in the book of Revelation. It's there. Because the tabernacle is in heaven. This is a pattern of a construction pattern, a construction plan that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. It came from heaven, and it speaks of heavenly things because this is the throne of God that it gives us a picture of. Hallelujah. Now let me tell you the importance. Can I just share with you? I didn't plan on doing this this morning. I sure do want to share this with you. I feel led to share with you the importance of studying and letting this truth embed in our hearts as far as the Christian life is concerned and how it points to our Savior. And I want you to look, if you will, in just a moment in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We talked about last week that oftentimes in the Christian community, will bat around truth and slogans will become famous in the Christian community that sound right but are not biblical. Like we'll float around a phrase and say, well, you know, and say the phrase and receive it as if it's, there's biblical truth behind it when oftentimes it's not backed up by the biblical truth and maybe not even appeared in Scripture at all. And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you one of those, and we mentioned this last week. Here's one of them. I've never met anybody that was, that was so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good, for one thing. I've never met anybody like that. I know I'm not like that, and I've never met anybody like that. But let me tell you, this is, this is a saying that floats around in Christendom, and I'm old enough now to be able to say that I've heard this, and maybe you haven't, but I have. That there are some people that are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. 
That is not biblical at all. The truth of the matter is, first of all, I've never met that person. Amen. I've never met that person. Not personally. I've never met that. I certainly don't see him when I look in the mirror. But I've never met that person. But let me tell you the truth of the matter is. In God's word, the truth of the matter is, is that you're no heavenly, you're no earthly good until you're heavenly minded. And I'm going to prove that just by this one text. There are a bunch of them. But let me prove you this one. Let's just prove it with this one. Look at Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to look in chapter 1. I mean verse 1. If then... You were raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him. In glory. The Bible says, fix your mind on things that are above. We've talked about it time and again. The only way to accurately process what's happening here is to get the focus on what's happening there. That's the only way to do it. And we use the example of the surgeon and the modern day surgery techniques where a surgeon will have a, a monitor up above him, above the, the operating table, and he'll be down here with his. Uh, scalpel and all the other th the tools he's using to do whatever he's doing to the person that's laying on the table. And instead of looking down at who he's operating on, he's looking at that monitor. And the monitor is magnifying what's going on down while he's looking. And he's able to do a more accurate, better job in the surgery by looking at the monitor and not actually looking at the person he's operating on. That's the Christian life. We need to get our minds off of earthly things, get our mind focused on heavenly things, and then we'll get the right perspective about what's going on on earth. Did you know we as Christians are under the pile? We are just as discouraged as the world is. We're just as hopeless as the world is. And we walk around with long faces like the world does. As if, we don't, as if the tomb is not empty. As if we don't have these promises that God made good on. As if we can't look up above and say our redemption draweth nigh. We have got the same priorities the world does. And we've got nothing pretty much to offer them. Because we bled into the spirit of the age and we act just like them. We need to set our mind on heavenly things and heavenly things that matter. I remind my children and my family all the time, there are only six things in this home that are eternal. Me, Jill, Yeah, six. Six things this world that are eternal. All the rest of it doesn't mount to a hill of beans, to be honest with you. Amen? And so there are seven, so I want you to know that this, this is not some exercise school so we can just go and say, wow, that's just neat biblical truth embedded there in the Old Testament about our Savior that we know from the New. But no, 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 no. It is an attempt by the Holy Spirit to just gently put His arm, under His hand under our chin. This is how I vision it. And God just stands before His children and He kind of just puts His hand gently under your chin and says, son, look at me. Quit looking around. Look at me. Look at me. Retool and look at me. And so that's what this is. We're studying the earthly tabernacle in order to learn heavenly truth. Now the tabernacle has seven pieces of furniture. You've, you who've been with us know, hopefully by now, what those seven pieces are. Just by way of summary, the first one is what? The bronze altar. The bronze altar is a symbol of what? 
cross at Calvary. Amen? That's how we get in, through the cross. That's where the offering was made. And that's where the offering was made for us on our behalf on Mount Calvary, right? Amen? And then the next one is what? The bronze laver, Luke. Amen? And that right there at the laver is where the washing takes place. It's not the washing to get us saved. It's the washing that is necessary to have fellowship and enjoy the fact that we are. So that we can move on in to an intimate walk in relationship with Jesus, which is symbolic of what? When you wash at the labor through the Word, and you have, you're confessed up, and you, and, you, and you constantly ask God to wash you through the Word, and confess unrepentant sin before Him, what's the next stop for that believer? The holy place. Sanctification, where you move into the holy place, where the intimate fellowship occurs, where the light of the Holy Spirit is what you operate by. Remember we said from the tabernacle, there are three sources of light in the tabernacle. Remember what they are? What's the first one? Natural sunlight. The same sunlight that the world operates under. There's, there's our problem right there. But then when you move into the most holy place, what's the next source of light? The golden lampstand. The golden lampstand is symbolic of who? The Holy Spirit. Man, praise the Lord. Okay. Then, you move, when you move into the holy place, you look on the right-hand side. What do you see there? The next piece of furniture is number three. Table of showbread of the presence of God, right? And the bread on there is symbolic of what? Who's the bread of life? Jesus, you feed for me. You'll never get thirsty. You'll never want again. I'm your provision. I'm your everything. Then you look right across and there's the what? The golden lampstand. The golden lampstand has seven branches on it. And that's symbolic of the ministry of? The sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. We learned that from Isaiah and also the book of Revelation. And then the Holy Spirit illuminates the room so that we can see what? What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? What were thou? Point out Christ. The Bible says, I'll send the Comforter and when He comes, He will testify of me. The only activity you've ever seen around you that was genuinely Jesus working in your life was illuminated for you by the Holy Spirit. Amen? And so then you move to the next place. What's the next place? The altar of incense. That's right. The golden altar of incense. What is that symbolic of? The prayer life of Jesus. Now the prayer life of Jesus, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Is that his prayer life? No. That's the prayer life of the disciple. That's the model prayer for the disciple. Jesus has no need to ask for forgiveness of sin. His prayer life is given to us where? John 17, where the high priestly prayer is given, where he prays on our behalf. Amen? And that's the intercessory relationship that he enjoys with the Father on your behalf. Hallelujah. You're not alone, and neither am I. And so what does the Bible say? That Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand. He sat down at the Father's right hand. And what is he doing there? Ever lives... To make intercession for you and I. Hallelujah. In your darkest hour, let me just tell you this. In your darkest hour, you know this saint. Jesus is praying for you. And can I say this to you? The Father never turns a deaf ear to His Son. And because He never turns a deaf ear to His Son, He's not turned one to you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Then the next spot that we went through last week and we went through the first one is the veil. And the veil separates. And we've got some stuff to do with that. But the veil separates us and we go into the what? 
the most holy place. And then do we come to the third source of light in the tabernacle. And what is the third source of life in the tabernacle? The Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God Himself hovering above the tabernacle. Oh my goodness. The very light that will light up heaven. And the other two will go away. They'll have no need for that anymore. Because the light of heaven will be who? The Lamb of God Himself. Amen? The Bible says that in Revelation. Then we looked at the tabernacle and we said, okay, now, if you the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant is two pieces of furniture. We refer to it as if it's one, but it's actually two. What's it comprised of? Do you remember? Two pieces. The Ark and the Mercy Seat that's above it. Okay? Now, we're going to look at the Ark and we're going to look at the contents of the Ark this morning. And I want you to, I want you to know something. Now, listen to me carefully. Before you can appreciate the fact that there's a lid on the Ark of the Covenant, you've got to appreciate what's inside it. The lid that's over the Ark of the Covenant means nothing to you until you understand what's inside that Ark. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And God willing, next Sunday we're going to go over the mercy seat itself. But listen to this. Inside, we just read it from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1-5. through 5. Inside the Ark of the Covenant is contained three things. One, first of all, inside the ark is contained the manna. You'll recall when the nation of Israel was liberated from 430 years of Egyptian bondage, they went through the Red Sea, and on the other side of the Red Sea, they began to doubt God and began to question Him, and they began to rebel against Him. And because of that, what should have been an 11-day trip turned into 40 years. 40 years of wandering, just one lap around the wilderness after the other, and they could not move into the promised land because it was not theirs for the achieving, it was theirs for the believing. And they wouldn't believe God for it. They thought that the giants over there that were bigger than the promises of God. How often do we do that? How often do we do that? Did you know what? There is no match for our God. Amen? Hey, beside Him, there is no other there is no match for our great God. Just like there's not a match for the gospel, Nancy, which is what you said a while ago, there's not a match for our great God who gave us the gospel. Amen? But so the, the, the situation loomed larger than Jesus. They did not believe Him. And what that ensured was, 40 years of wandering around the wilderness until every last one of you die off, did I get to some people I can work through? Okay, so now they're in the 40 years of the wilderness. Now, in the 40-year travel during the wilderness, what were they fed by? Do you remember? Manna. Where did it come from? Heaven. They get up in the morning and there'd be enough there for them and their families. They would gather it up six days a week. On the sixth day, they would gather together a double portion because they weren't supposed to be gathering on the seventh day. God would send enough to get them through the seventh day, then start on Monday and go all over or Saturday, Sunday and go all over again. And it was manna from heaven. They were fed by God Himself. That word manna means what is it? That's exactly what it means. They got up every morning and went, What is this? But they ate enough of it to keep them alive. And so that was manna from heaven. God said, I want you to take a pot, a golden pot, I want you to fill it full of manna, this manna from heaven. I'm going to preserve it forever, and I want you to put it inside the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to tell why it's there in just a minute. Then, next to that was Aaron's rod that budded. Have you ever heard of that? You remember what happened in that story? What happened was there was a rebellion in Numbers chapter 16 and 17. And in the rebellion... God's people began to do what we'll often do. They began to go, we don't like our leadership. Nana, nana, boo-boo. 
And there was a bunch of spoiled, rebellious, hard-headed, stiff-necked brats. And they said, you know what, Moses and Aaron, who are you to lead us? And who are you to tell us what God told us to do and us obey? We can go to God just like you can. That didn't work out too well for them because God sent judgment on them and killed them for that. But in the next chapter, in chapter 17, they also began to question Aaron's leadership and his priesthood because the priesthood came through the lineage of Aaron. So here's what, the, here's what Moses said. I said, tell you what. <coughs> Excuse me. We'll take a rod from every tribe. Now a rod is a symbol of authority. We're going to take a rod from every tribe we're going to take this rod and we're going to put it in the front of the Ark of the Testimony. Overnight, we're going to get up the next day and on one of the rods was listed Aaron's name. And the rest of them were the names of the other tribes. And his priesthood came, eventually became the Levites, you know that. But Aaron's name was on that rod. They inscribed his name on the rod. And they said, let's see what God does next, overnight, to affirm who is supposed to be the priest. Well, they get up the next morning and guess what happens? Aaron's rod is budded and there's almonds on it. Now, in Israel, the first tree of the year in spring to bud is the almond tree. It buds before any of them. It buds early on. As a matter of fact, it almost buds, I think, a little bit before spring actually starts. And it, be it began to bud and that almond tree, Andrew, speaks of resur resurrection. It speaks of brand new life. And the only rod that was budding was Aaron's. And it was God's affirmation from heaven that says, Moses is my man and that's my priest. Any questions? Okay? So that's the, that's the symbolism there. Now, the next thing that's in there is the one that really got him in trouble. What's the next thing that's in there? You remember? The Ten Commandments. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 25 verse 16 that they were to take the tablets of testimony which would be the Ten Commandments inscribed by the finger of God and they were to put them into the Ark of the Covenant. Now, here's the symbolism. Here's the spiritual truth behind this. You don't want an ark without a lid on it. You don't want an ark without a lid on it. Because the lid keeps you and shields you from the condemnation that you're surely under because of what's beneath it. Let me explain that. The law is inside that ark. The law demanded judgment and death for the transgressors. The law contained in there indicted us. The law cannot remove sin. The law can only expose us to be sinners. And the law calls for judgment not once, not through two or three violations, but every violation of the law calls for the judgment of God. The law cannot save. It can only condemn. It cannot take away sin. It can only reveal sin. It cannot give life to the sinner. It can only kill the transgressor. The law could not even spare Christ when He died on the cross and offered up His Himself and His body on the cross of Calvary to bear our sin. If the law could save, surely it would have spared Him. And the law could not even save Jesus Christ because it killed Him. That's not because He was a sinner. It was because He was a sin bearer. It's because God took every one of my nasty, rebellious acts, every sin that I've ever committed, my sin nature, and the sins arising from it, and put them on His Son and punished Him as if He'd done it. 
If God were going to make an exception for lawbreakers, He would have made it there. He would have made it there. But He didn't. We have a, we have a perverse view of God. Here's, here's what we do. We have, this, we have this view of God that He is exclusively merciful, that He is exclusively just, and He's full of grace, and that's it. And compassion and mercy. And He's all of those things. But you can't really appreciate that He's those things until you first understand that He's just. We're so caught up in the spirit of the age. We want to be so accepted by others. We want to be so affirmed by a lost world that we've gutted the offense of the cross. We've left out the use of the law to win converts to Christ, to expose them as need of a Savior, to repent toward God and put faith in Jesus. We've rounded off the edges of the gospel. And you round off the edges of the gospel, you wound up with not a gospel. I'm not going to ask you to look there. But in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19, there's a story of where the ark had been captured by the Philistines in the previous chapter. And it caused some real problems for them. We won't get into that, but it caused some real problems for them. And they were like, man, they called their seers and everybody else together and said, listen, somehow or another, tell us how to get rid of this. Tell us how to get rid of this. Because judgment was falling upon them because of the possession of the ark. They weren't supposed to have it. You know what they do? The seers tell them to take a couple of cows, put them, hitch them to the cart to carry the ark, and send them off. And wherever it rests, that's where it's supposed to be. You know where God led it? God led it to a Levitical city 15 miles west of Jerusalem called Beth Shemel, I think it's what, Shemesh. Beth Shemesh, and it was a Levitical city in that many of the priesthood, uh, the men of the priesthood uh, tribe of, of Aaron's descendants lived in that city. Alright, so it got back to where it was supposed to be. I mean, it's getting back to where it's supposed to be. You know the story. You know what happened? Some guys completely neglected what they knew of the holiness of God, opened the lid, looked within it, and do you remember what happened? Some 50,000 people died just like that. You don't want an ark without a lid on it. Because see, the ark without the lid on it exposes us to be lawbreakers, period. In, and it demands the sure judgment of God. To not want what's in that ark, to turn a stiff neck towards what's in that ark, is to turn a stiff neck toward the life, work, and ministry of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why. The manna represents His body and His blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. The rod that budded represents a mediating priesthood whereby Jesus stands between us and an angry God who is offended by unholy, unrighteous people like every one of us were before we got saved. And only not now because of a new identity we have in Him. 
And the one who stepped in between, that mediating priesthood is what that represents. A go-between, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The only one qualified to be a go-between did become a go-between. The only one who qualified to die for my sin did die for my sin. And the only one who qualified was verified and that, that, sin, that substitutionary death was accepted because God raised him from the dead. So to reject the manna is to reject his broken body. To reject the mediating priesthood is to reject the office that Christ holds right now where he's a go-between between us, unworthy sinners, and a holy God who's offended by our transgressions. And it's also to look at the law and say, God, I'll take my chances on my own. After all, I've lived better than so-and-so. See, there we go again. Hey, listen, if we compare ourselves to each other, I'm okay, you're okay kind of shenanigans, then we might make a case that we might could fare well in judgment. But that's not the standards God's going to use. The standard God's going to use is He's going to judge us based on His holy word and character and the fact that we've offended it. And therefore, every one of us stand condemned before Him. A pagan once said that God created man in his own image. And ever since then, man's been trying to return to favor. Next week we're going to go into it. We're about to close. But there's a lid on the Ark of the Covenant. Oh my, please don't miss this. The lid on the Ark of the Covenant is not a seal of judgment. The lid on the Ark of the Covenant, the seventh piece of furniture, is called the mercy seat. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's got a lid. I should have called this message, it's got a lid. It's got a lid, friends. It's got a lid. And that go-between, that mediator, that mediating priesthood is none other than Jesus Christ. It's His throne. I'll prove it to you next week scripturally. It's also a lid to indicate that what He did when He sits on that throne is superior to the old covenant that's represented beneath Him. He's got a priesthood that's superior to to the priesthood of the Levitical priesthood. He's got a priesthood not according to the Levites. He's got a priesthood according to a priest called Melchizedek. And that priesthood is eternal. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. You know what? The reason this is so important. There, there, there are several reasons why this is so important. Can I give you some just from a practical application this morning? First and foremost, in our witnessing. In our witnessing. You know what we do when we witness to people? If we do witness, you know what we do? We jump right over the law and go straight to Calvary. And talk about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for them. And we skip over any kind of revelation that they're unworthy sinners. And absent Jesus Christ, His atoning work on the cross, they can expect nothing but God's judgment. We're apologetic for the fact that God's just. Can I, can I carry you to a scripture? And we've been there before. You are to underline this in your Bible. And you're to, fathers, can I give you a little helpful hint? 
teach your children that this verse, the bottom of this verse, is the outline of the gospel. You can say it that way. I go to my son all the time and I say, Andrew, what's the outline of the gospel? And he'll tell me. And so go to them and you let them know, this is the outline of the gospel. Dad, if you're in here and you've got children, are your responsibility. Begin to teach them that this is the outline of the gospel. It's Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 20, 21. Let's read it. Isaiah 45, 21. Pastor Dave and I have been talking about getting some banners to put up in front of the church that have this prominently disclosed up there so that our children can have this embedded in their spirits when they walk in here from their church. They'll know from the time they were little that God is, God is two things. I want you to look at it now. In the very end of it is where you'll need to, you'll need to see the emphasis here. We'll read the whole verse, but it's the very end. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. And here it is right here. A just God and a Savior. You see it? There is none beside me. You're to underline that in your Bible and teach that to your children. Children... And the person at the cubicle next to you or in the neighborhood that you've been praying for opportunities to witness to them, there's two things they need to know about God. There's two things they must know about God. And it's not just that He's a Savior. They need to know that God is just. And when they understand that He's just, they will really appreciate the fact that He's a Savior. You know the story in the Bible where Jesus, the woman... The sinful woman was washing his feet. He was in Simon's house. You remember that? The religious big shot who invited him to come see him? He said, let me ask you a question. He said, somebody owes somebody a large sum of money, and somebody owes somebody a smaller sum of money. He said, if the debt is forgiven, who do you think is going to be the one who's most appreciative? And he said, well, I guess it would be the one who was owed the larger sum of money. He said, you know what? You've spoken right. And since I've been in here, you've been kind of callous toward me. I'm paraphrasing. You've been kind of like, well, i got Jesus in the room. Good. You know, we'll have Ray Morris over next week. You know, you, know, you know, no big deal. But since I've been here, this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet and wipe my feet with her hair. You know why? Because she figured she had much to be forgiven for. And until we know that God's just and have an appreciation for how much we need to be, give, be, be forgiven for, Calvary doesn't have the weight in the life of, in heart of a believer or a, a wayward believer or a lost person until we first know He's just. Before you tell somebody that the ark's got a lid on it, you need to share with them what's contained within it. And when what's contained within it, you get to tell them, can I tell you this? God sent a lid God covered His righteous law and the penalty for your violation of it and mine, which is eternity in hell. He covered it. There's a go-between. Are you interested in hearing? And then they're interested in hearing. And let me tell you this. For the believer, let me, let me just say this to you. As far as a practical application here, we've messed up our witness. And we've done, you know why we've done that? We've done that because we're courting the favor of men trying to, rather than being faithful to the gospel of God. That's why we've done that. We've compromised over and over and over again because we're more interested in people liking us than people going to heaven or hell. 
The message of the gospel is offensive to a lost man. The messenger must never be. The message is offensive, but the messenger must never be. To the believer, one of the reasons why we carry around much of what we carry around in unforgiveness and bitterness toward one another is because we've lost sight of how much we've been forgiven for. That's the cog that turns around Jesus' teaching about His admonishment for us to forgive one another. You know what it is? You know what it's based on? It's based on this. Matthew chapter 19. Go read it to your children when you get home today. Matthew, it, it, it's, you, know what it's, you know what he's saying? It says this. We can forgive because we've been forgiven. And we can love because we've been loved. And we can impart grace because gracious, God's graciously dealt with us. See, the more if we begin to lose sight of how, bad, how much we have been forgiven of, we're hard-pressed to forgive other people. But once we take a look and just think about what it would be like if there were no lid on that ark, just think about what it would be like if there were no lid on that ark. On that day, 50,000 people get killed just like that. And it was God's way of communicating. Listen to me. That law will do nothing but condemn you. That law did not spare my son. That law I'm serious about. I am just. And I, my justice demands that I must punish sin. And absent a, absent a go-between, absent a mediator, absent a substitute, you have no hope in standing in judgment on your own before me. And based on what I did though, and I put a lid over that, and we're going to go into that next week. I put a lid there. I put my son in between. I leveled my judgment on my son. And you lose sight, and I lose sight of how much we've been forgiven for. Then we'll do a poor job, if any, of forgiving others. That's as practical as it gets from God's Word. I'll tell you this... I, Throughout the body of Christ, I think much of the conflict that we have and much of the things that we get involved in is because we're to have agape love for one another and we actually have philia. We have a brotherly, kindly affection and that will carry you as far as the first conflict. That will carry you as far as, the, as, the, as, the, as when things get challenged. But when things get challenged and you have to get in the ditch with a relationship, we'll, we'll throw people under the bus in a New York minute if you don't have agape. Filio will throw you under the bus. Agape is willing to surrender. Surrender its rights for the spiritual benefit of others. There are things that are bigger than me. And that's the gospel. The gospel is bigger than your marriage. The gospel is bigger than your family relationships even. The gospel is bigger. It's about the gospel. And the gospel is not just limited to the gospel as we know it. It's the whole work of Christ from beginning to end, from pillar to post. It's the gospel. That's what matters. Period. End of subject. We live such puny lives. Our perspectives are so puny. They're so minuscule. They're so nothing. We think that life is about us. We've elevated everything to be about us. We determine the activity of God based on how it affects us. What about His glory? What about putting His Son on display? What about getting out of the way and letting people who are around me get one shot at seeing the real legitimate God? The Bible says pursue peace 
and holiness, without which no one will get to see the Lord. I'll give you an interpretation of that verse. Pursue peace and holiness, without which no one will get to see the Lord. I used to think, and, and, and you know what? You can take me a task on this. Send me an email. Don't cut my tires. But send me an email. And don't send it on out there to everybody. Just send it to me directly. And, uh, and, and we'll deal with it. But let me tell you this. Can I, can I render this? Can I hold this forth to you? Pursue peace and holiness. I used to think that meant that unless you're pursuing peace and you're holy, you don't get to see God. Now, Jesus makes us holy. It's imputed righteousness by faith. I know that. Can I, can I, can I offer this up? Unless we're pursuing peace and we're living holy, nobody around us gets to see Jesus. Forgiveness, the root of bitterness, anger. Let's be gracious and merciful to each other because God's been gracious and merciful to us. You know what it says in James? I'm so grateful for this. And even even the even the even the mercy seat typifies this. It even is symbolic of it. Listen to this. You know what it says? Judgment was without mercy. But what? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Aren't you grateful? Judgment. Symbolic of the of the of the uh, of the of the uh, of the Ark of the Covenant. Mercy seat above it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 